0: We have the pleasure of uh, introducing some new members here at uh, ABF this morning. So I'd like to invite up uh, Stacy and Marissa Stephenson, uh, along with uh, Ashlyn and Haley, uh, their two uh, oldest daughters, and then young Hunter bringing up the rear. Hunter, glad that you uh, could make it up. So uh, we want to uh, to introduce them as uh, new members here at uh, at ABF, and they had a very uh, very vital role uh, in this church plant. So, uh, years and years ago, my wife worked with Miss Marissa in the preschool. I had never met Miss Marissa, but I heard all about Miss Marissa, uh, and uh, from her time at Rocky Peak Preschool. And uh, we were thinking about coming up here, uh, and somehow uh, Libby saw that uh, Marissa and Stacy were here. In Meridian when we were coming up and scouting the area. So, uh, we, uh, hopped on Facebook Messenger or something, uh, and Libby connected and I got to meet Miss Marissa, uh, right over here at Settlers Park, uh, and they were hoping to move up here and, uh, took them two years. Uh, so they were the first family that said, okay, we're in. Uh, we want to come to Ambassador. They were just two years late, uh, from, from coming up. Uh, but it was very key in terms of they, we're the ones that introduced us to other families uh, in the area and uh, got things rolling. So we are so excited to welcome you guys in as members, and we are excited to welcome in Ashlyn and Haley as our first uh provisional members. So those, uh, we encourage teens to pursue and consider membership. Uh, and we call them provisional members because when it comes time to vote on buying property or other things, they don't have that power just yet. Uh, but we treat them as, uh, as members here at the church and we want to encourage other teens, uh, to consider and pursue that, uh, as well. So we're not just welcoming in, uh, Stacey and Marissa, but also Ashlyn and uh, Haley uh, and Hunter. We'll give you some time, buddy. Uh, but, uh, Bruce, would you like to pray for them?
1: Uh, Please pray with me. Precious Father, we just thank you so much for the Stephenson family and uh, just how you've used them in a mighty way, even while they weren't physically here. But Lord, we're even more excited about what you've done in their lives. Lord, how you've uh, drawn them to yourself. And uh, Lord, they desire to not only uh, stand for you in baptism as a member of the Universal Church, but... Today, they want to be uh, committed members of Ambassador Bible Fellowship. And Lord, I just pray that you would uh, guard them, protect them. You would bless them, use them. Each of the gifts, the strengths, uh, the talents that you've given them, Lord, may they serve others well. And may they bring you glory and honor. And I pray uh, even for the youth uh, in our church, Lord, that... Uh, there would be many who would desire to not only stand for you in baptism uh, and to proclaim their faith publicly, but to also commit to become a servant of this body, uh, to give and to uh, put others first. And Lord, uh, bless the Stephenson family, uh, especially on this day uh, for Stacy is a great Father's Day gift. Uh, and I just ask, uh, you receive the glory and the honor in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Welcome. Right. And, uh, want to wish a happy father's day to all the the fathers here and, uh, not just the fathers, but all who have their Bibles can turn uh, to Psalm nine, which is where we'll be, uh, finishing up our, uh, or continuing our study of the Psalms uh, this summer, uh, and uh, as you're turning there, I want to take you back to your high school civics or government class, okay, uh, and uh, you probably already know that the United States government has how many branches? Three. Three. Okay, we have the executive branch, which is typically just thought of as, uh, the, the office of the president, but it actually consists not only of the president, but also the vice president, and then all of the, the bureaucracy created by the cabinet members and the different departments, uh, of the, uh, the cabinet, uh, that is put together by the president. So all of that comprises the executive branch of our government. The legislative branch is made up of two houses uh, known as the Congress, uh, the upper house of the Senate and the lower house of the uh, House of Representatives. And then we have the judicial branch, which consists of the Supreme Court and the other federal courts uh, underneath that highest court in the land. And because our our founding fathers were convinced of man's sinfulness— They said, hey, we can't give absolute power to any one of these branches. We need to to divvy it up and make sure that these different branches of government can counteract each other. And uh, yet, to those who have been paying attention, it has become clear that that one branch of our government has become more powerful and more influential than the other two. Uh, And uh, this, uh, it would be the Supreme Court, the judicial branch of our government, uh, the court's power influence has become more and more obvious over the last 50 years, uh, and that's where uh, there's a growing concern about that. But that concern isn't new. There was uh, one uh, early uh, founding father who wrote this uh, in an essay uh, shortly after the founding of our nation. The essay is entitled, The Supreme Court, so they will mold the government into almost any shape that they please. That's the name of the essay, so you know it's going to be wordy. Uh, but uh, in this essay, the author goes on to say that, Uh, that the power granted to the court was unprecedented in any free country because its justices are finally answerable to no one. No errors they may commit can be corrected by any power above them, and if if such any power there be, nor can they be removed from office for making ever so many erroneous adjudications. Uh, And indeed, because those members of the Supreme Court are appointed for life, uh, and because neither the, the legislative branch or the executive branch has the power or the authority to come say, hey, I think you got that one wrong and we're going to overturn you on that. Indeed, the Supreme Court has become, I would say, the, the most influential and powerful branch of our federal government. And they have shaped our country in dramatic and lasting ways in the last 50 years. And that is the power of a judge to make decisions, to rule and say this is the judgment that I am making about a given situation and this is going to be the rule and law of the land. And this is something that we're kind of just grasping here in the United States because we're a democracy and we always say that the power belongs with the people. But but in years gone by, in, in different nations, uh, the most common form of government has been a monarchy. Uh, and in a monarchy... Who who is the the highest judge? The king or the queen. Uh, They are the one who has absolute power. And the monarch always was the highest court, and they functioned as both king and as judge. And here's a question that many in the Middle Ages faced, and that we are beginning to face here in America. What do you do when you have unrighteous judges? What do you do when there is injustice in the land? How are we to respond when we have unrighteous leaders in authority over us? And moving beyond just that question, what about how do we respond to injustice just in our lives? How do we respond to oppression? How do we respond to others aligning themselves against us? And some of you may be saying, well, I don't face that. I don't have anybody conspiring against me at this point in time. Well, just, just give it a little bit of time. Uh, Psalms Psalms will, uh, will become true in your life at one point or another. Uh, and I would say this. If you haven't experienced oppression or affliction or interpersonal conflict yet, say just give it time. And then also, how might you be an encouragement to others who are going through it? Because if you're not going through it, I guarantee you, you know somebody else who is going through... Oppression and conflict and, and being attacked, how do we to respond to such things and, and those are the questions that that King David is wrestling with in psalms nine and ten uh, and in the, the superscription of Psalm nine it says to the choir master, according to the muth Laban, a psalm of David we're told that this is written by King David, uh, and according to the Muth Laban is again one of those funny hebrew terms that we don't know the exact meaning of it could be a musical instrument it could be again a, a familiar melody of that time uh that people would say oh i know that tune let me sing these words along to it and it is likely that when this was originally written it was combined with psalm 10 uh, that psalms 9 and 10 were originally one psalm when they were written and that they were later divided up and uh Arguments for that would be in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it treats them as a single psalm. So if you ever read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, the numbering of the psalms will be off from this point forward. Uh, there's also an acrostic pattern, uh, meaning that, uh, you know, verse starts with the, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the next verse starts with the second letter and, and, and so on and so forth. There's an acrostic pattern that spans across both of the psalms. Uh, And Psalm 10 picks up right where Psalm 9 left off. Additionally, Psalm 10, if you look there, it doesn't have a superscription. But every single psalm from Psalm 3 through 32 has a superscription except Psalm 10. Psalms 1 and 2, as we've talked about, serve kind of as the introduction to the entire psalm book and they don't have a superscription, but 3 through 32, every single one of them has a superscription, so it's unusual that Psalm 10 doesn't have it, but it makes sense if at one point it was the second half of Psalm 9. We don't know why it was divided, uh, but we do see a, a logical connection between what uh, what we see in Psalm 9 and what has we have seen even last week in Psalm 8. Because last week, as we looked at Psalm 8, David is contemplating the universe. He's contemplating the cosmos. And in Psalm 9, his eyes move back earthward. And he begins to see and understand life here on earth. Uh, And he sees what he has himself experienced. Suffering and affliction. People coming after him. As a teenager, David was anointed king by the prophet Samuel. There's only one problem. There was already one king, King Saul. Uh, and so uh, David is anointed, but there's another king. Uh, and as soon as David is anointed, there, there begins to be strife between them. Now uh, David was a teenager when he was anointed, and he didn't become king until he was 30 years old. So there's about 10 to 15 years of time where he is running for his life, running from Saul. And then once he becomes king, he rules for another 40 years. And during those 40 years, guess what? There are multiple challenges to his reign. Multiple people come and try and battle against him and become king, including his own son Absalom, who died in battle against David's forces after he tried to seize the throne from his father. What we see in the life of David is that he experienced much oppression and injustice. He was constantly attacked and maligned by others. And what we see in Psalm 9 is that David turned to what I would call the royal courtroom. He turned and looked to God for justice. He turned to God in prayer, appealing to him to act and become involved in the situations here on earth. David meditated upon the all-powerful king who sits enthroned in heaven and who judges perfectly and righteously and who will one day bring perfect justice to his creation. As we read Psalm 9 now together, I would encourage you, just just look at all of the the kingly language. He speaks of the, the throne room and the throne constantly. Then also look at the language of judgment as we read through this psalm together, beginning in verse 1. David writes, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonder- wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause and have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. And you have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with, up, with righteousness. And he judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lifted me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higion, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, let the nations be judged before you, put them in fear, O Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. We are blessed to have this psalm for us today, for it teaches us, it reminds us that for every injustice we see and every injustice we experience in this life, we still have a refuge to run to. We still have a righteous judge, a righteous king who sits on his throne and who will one day bring justice to every situation. He will one day right every wrong and judge every sin uprightly. But as we look at this, we me ask, why should we run to this royal courtroom? Why should I trust that justice will come from this court? Because what do we see in human courts? Does justice always reign? What is it that's usually out in front of a courthouse? What lady? Lady Justice. And what does she have in her hands? Scales, but what's on her face? A blindfold. And what is that to represent? That justice is blind. Some of it may see, well, well, it's always equal. Or sometimes it doesn't necessarily know what it's doing. Uh, There's multiple ways that you could look at that. But seeing and understanding the human courts, why should I place my trust in this royal heavenly court? And if I do place my hope and trust in this court, what does it look like to make an appeal in this court? What's the process? What do I do? And this psalm explains both why we should run to this royal court and how we are to make an appeal in that courtroom. And you could take this psalm and you could divide it in two. Uh, in the first portion, verses 1 through 12, you could say is that the reasons we should run to the royal courtroom. And the second half of this psalm, verses 13 through 20, we could call the example of running to the royal courtroom. We, we see what it looks like to run to this court and to make an appeal to our king and judge jesus christ but look with me first uh, at the reasons we should run to the royal courtroom Uh, and what david is going to do in the first 12 verses he's going to give us three reasons uh, that why we should run to christ as our savior as our king as our judge and and reason number one is found in the first two verses we see that our king and judge is worthy of our praise. David begins everything that he's about to say with words of praise. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, and I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And in these first two verses, David explains his desire to worship the Lord uh, from his entire being. He says, with all of my heart, Lord, I long to, to worship you, to give thanks, to praise you, to recount all of your wonderful deeds. And that word for recount, that's an accounting word. Uh, that is an intensive numbering and looking through. And I'm, I'm going to count up and, and assign a number to all of the wonderful things that God has done. He becomes an accountant, and then he continues on and says, "I will be glad, and I will exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High." And David says, "Hey, I'm going to worship, but I'm not just going to worship as a a typical emotionless accountant. No, no insult to all of you accountants in the room." but he says, hey, I'm going to do it with some emotion. I'm going to do it with gladness and with joy. I'm going to exalt in God. I'm going to sing to him. Uh, and, you know, sometimes that person at work who comes into work and they're just always singing early in the morning and like, hey, how can you be that happy this early in the morning? Well, because they're a joyful person. That's how we should be all the time when we are coming and to worship God. We should be worshiping God with joy. We should be smiling as we sing on Sunday morning. I don't know what Tim sees up here, but I hope he sees a whole bunch of smiling faces uh, singing and worshiping God, thinking of all the things that God has done for us. Charles Spurgeon has said that songs are the fitting expression of inward thankfulness. And that is what we must agree with and understand, that if we are truly worshiping God, we can't help but sing to Him and sing praises to Him, worshiping Him and that, that idea of our English word for praise comes actually from an old French word. simply means to prize. You're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and thus to, to praise God is to prize Him, to value Him, to, to honor Him, to, to ascribe uh, value and esteem and respect to Him. And I would say this, that that which you prize, you will also give praise to. If you value God, you can't help but praise Him as well. You can say, oh, He's so valuable to me, but I don't want to ever speak about Him. I, I don't want to praise Him or give Him honor. No. What, what is today, children? Father's Day. Okay? If you are thankful for your Father, what will you say to Him today? Thank you. Yeah, you will praise Him. You'll say, Dad, thank you for doing this and doing this. I appreciate the times when you wake up early and you go to work so I have food uh, when I come home and I can have snacks in the cupboard whenever I want and all of these things. And Dad's like, well, eat less snacks and I'll take it, or we'll call it even. Uh, but uh, you honor and respect your Father, so what should you do on this day called Father's Day? You, you praise Him. You thank Him. And that is what we are called to do If we prize God, if we value Him, we are to praise Him. And if we truly value Him, we will do that with joy and gladness, singing to Him. And my prayer would be that we would all sing along with David as we recount the wonderful deeds that God has done, not just in the pages of Scripture, not just looking at at the scope of redemptive history and saying, God, look at all the things that you've done and I praise you for that, but also looking and taking inventory of our own lives. Again, I've encouraged in the past and I would encourage it again. Keep a prayer journal. Uh, Keep an account and a record of all the ways that God has blessed you and your family. And then fathers, share that with your kids. Share that and tell them, look at the ways that God has provided. Yeah, money was really tight, but God provided for us here. God provided direction here and all of these other things. Share those ways, the wonderful deeds with your children. Teach them and disciple them. Accordingly, teach them that we have a king and a judge who is worthy of honor and adoration so that we should prize and praise him both for his character and his conduct. That is what David is praising him for here. Who he is and what he has done. His actions and his attributes should always be on our lips. And the worthiness of our king and judge is the first reason that we should run to his royal courtroom when we face oppression in this life. And the second reason is found in verses 3 through 10. You could call this a reason that our king and judge has a history of faithfulness. And this is what David recounts to us. He begins with praise, and then he gets historical. Look at me at those verses. Verses 3 through 5 kind of begin speaking about how God was faithful to David in his lifetime. We see that God is faithful over the course of a human life. David says, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. You have maintained my just cause, and you have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. And this is David reflecting upon his own experience. Again, David faced a lot of persecution, a lot of oppression and affliction in his life. And yet, each and every time, what did the Lord do? The Lord delivered him. Uh, And David just looks and sees, trying to share with us, hey, look at this track record that God has in my own life of delivering me, of, of saving. And during the course of all of this, again, notice that, Even though David has faced affliction from other nations and from the wicked, what is he still sure of at the end of verse four? God is still you are still on the throne. That God hasn't jumped off of the throne whenever we face persecution. Not like oh where did God go? He's taking a break and that's why I'm going through this. No, God is still in control still on the throne, in control of all things. And after looking at his own life and the the faithfulness uh, in an individual human life, in verses 6 through 8, David moves uh, to show that God is faithful over the course of all of human history. Look with me at those verses. He says, "...the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever." He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. And in this, David is making a contrast. As, as he looks at the scope of human history, he notices there's a pattern here. What happens to all of those who persecute him? All of those who uh, afflict others? What happens to wicked nations over the course of history? They disappear. The Lord judges them. Uh, They are broken down and destroyed. They come to an end in everlasting ruins. That is the conclusion of verse 6. But then, in contrast to that, look at verse 7. The nations and the wicked come to ruin, but where is God through all of that? He's still sitting on His throne. The nations are destroyed and they pass into history, but God is still in control, still sitting and ruling over all things. And in one sense, verses 7 and 8 are the heart of this psalm. Because verses 7 and 8 emphasize where is God? What is He doing? He is on the throne. And why was His throne established? It was established for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. And what we see is that God is ruling and superintending over all things, yes. But sometimes in the Hebrew, what they do is when something is so, so certain, it hasn't taken place yet, but Hebrew authors like to speak of it as if it has already happened. So they use the past tense to speak of future events. Say, this is how sure I am of what's going to take place. That God will rule and judge everything in righteousness and uprightness. And God was faithful to David in his own lifetime, and God has been faithful over the course of human history. And then, kind of as the the third argument and demonstration of God's faithfulness, David points to the way that God is faithful to all who trust and seek Him, and this is found in verses 9 and 10. David moves along, and then he says, "...the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed." A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. God is faithful to all who trust and seek him. And if if verses 7 and 8 are the center and the heart of this psalm, I think verses 9 and 10 may be the most encouraging. Amen. That God is a stronghold. He is a refuge. Uh, That word stronghold there has the idea of going up uh, to a high place. Uh, And in uh, the the Hebrew understanding, the allusion is to the fact that in the ancient world, where did you find safety? Where did you find rest? Somewhere up high where your enemy couldn't get you. Where where nobody could reach you. That's where safety was to be found. Uh, And... God is intended to be our refuge. He is that place of safety and rest that we can run to in the times of trouble. But we don't necessarily always do that, do we? We don't always go to Him. Sometimes we like to, to turn to other things to try and find our peace and find our refuge. When we turn to, to things that we have created or things that the world encourages us to find our peace in, but those those tend to not really provide peace for long. We have to understand if we want true, lasting peace through any and all circumstances, we look to God as our refuge, as our high place that we run to. Additionally, we see that those who know God, those who know your name and put their trust in you, they won't be forsaken. God doesn't forget about those who trust in Him. But He always makes a way for us to reach Him. We can always make it to that refuge. We can always make it to our stronghold. But again, sometimes, in whether through unbelief or forgetfulness or, or fear, we don't run to God in, in times of trouble. But we can only run to God if we know the way to Him. So if you were to live in tornado country... Uh, in the south or in the midwest uh when you live in in that region of the country where there could be uh, a tornado coming at any point in time what do you always know you always know a path somewhere and that's to the storm cellar or somewhere for shelter Uh, and parents you would you would speak with your kids of okay if there's a tornado that comes we are going to Go to the basement. We're going to go and go to the middle of the house and close the door. You have a plan and a course of action in an emergency when a tornado comes. This is where we will seek refuge. But we need to do the same thing in discipling our children. This is when trials come. What do we do? Now I would say, parents, what have you modeled for your kids on that? When trials come, what have you? What have they seen? Where is it that you run to? Sometimes you just run to escape. You you run to distraction. You run to something else to get your mind off of the trials or the afflictions that you are facing. Other times you turn to things that that you should not. Again, seeking them as a source of satisfaction or a solution to your problems. Scripture calls that an idol. And if you aren't experiencing peace... You're full of fear and anxiety. I would just venture to say, are you turning to Christ as your refuge or to something else? Do you see God as the one that when trials and troubles hit, when somebody is persecuting you, attacking you, do you run to him in prayer? Do you entrust yourself to our king and our judge, looking to him as your final hope? And you can look at verses 3 through 10, and really what David has laid out is a credit history for God. Say, God, how, why should I trust you? Have you demonstrated yourself to be faithful in the past? Well, absolutely. And we know that because of what David says right here. He says, look at how God has been faithful in, in David's own life. Look at how God has been faithful in human history. And then look at the credit history of God when it comes to saving the afflicted and the needy. He is the one that they can always turn and run to. And when we look at God's credit history, we see a perfect score. So then the question arises, will you trust him? Will you look to God as your refuge, as your stronghold? But again, what it says is those who know your name and trust, if you don't know God, you probably won't trust him. Which is also tangible on a personal level. Do you trust strangers? And what do we teach our kids? No, stranger danger. Uh, and so if God is a stranger to you, you're probably not going to run to him in times of trouble. You're going to run away from him. So your first task is beginning to know who God is. To understand what he has done, what he is like. Understand his character. Understand his attributes. We must know him if we are going to trust him. And if you don't know him, let me introduce you to him. He is the one who has created you. He's the one who has given you life and breath and everything. And not just of you, but of all of us. And all of us owe him everything. He is our heavenly father. That we are to give honor and praise to. And yet every single one of us has rebelled against him. We have rebelled against our creator. And that rebellion Brings a penalty with it. And that rebellion, what the scripture would call sin. And the penalty for our sin is an eternal punishment because we've sinned against an eternal God. The higher the authority, the greater the offense. And our rebellion against an infinite and holy God has separated us from Him. And now we have a debt of pay, a debt of sin to pay to Him eternally. And we can pay that sin, our, that debt ourselves, separated from God. For all time, or we can look to his son, the judge and king that God has provided also as our sacrifice. That if we trust and look to him, he becomes our refuge and our hope. Jesus lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and then rose again on the third day. And now we are all called to trust in him, not only for our salvation from sin, but we, he becomes our refuge that we are able to run to in each and every trial and circumstance of life. That is what we are called to do. God can be that place of refuge for you. And I would urge you, if you don't know Christ, if you have not yet trusted him, Please come talk with me. I would urge you, plead with you to look to him and turn to him today. He is a worthy stronghold, the best refuge that you can find. And what we see is that David began his reasons of why we should run to God as our royal courtroom, as our refuge. He began with praise and now he's going to close with praise. The third reason that David gives Uh, It's found in verses 11 and 12, and it's our king and judge is worthy to be proclaimed. Look at me at those verses. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them, and he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. What we see is that that David comes full circle, and he's closing in praise in the same way that he began in praise. He's trying to convince us that God is a worthy refuge. This is what he turns to. And he does. what we see is that God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. That's why we are to, to sing praises to him who is enthroned. And we are to, to go and proclaim him. Right? We've seen how God has worked in our life, how he's worked in human history. We see his faithfulness. Now, what are we called to do? Not just keep it to ourselves, but to to go and proclaim, to go and tell others of our king and our judge who is worthy. And he speaks uh, in verse 12. He says, For he who avenges blood is mindful of them, meaning of the peoples. That idea of being mindful, we saw it last week. If you just turn turn the page over to Psalm 8, verse 4, it says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Getting that same idea. How can this God who's created everything still be mindful of men? And what are we supposed to call and share with others? That God is aware of who you are and what you are going through. This is a beautiful picture because... Our mindfulness naturally pulls us towards something. Now, when you bring up a memory, when you call something to mind, kind of it's like you travel back in time to that time, to that place, to that experience, and you kind of relive all of the emotions that, that are connected with that experience. Right? And you naturally gravitate back to whatever that you are thinking of. That is what takes place. Now, think about that. If we, if we gravitate to those things that we remember... What happens if if God is mindful of us, what is taking place? Well, He is drawing near to us. He is gravitating to us because He is mindful. He is thinking of who we are and what we are to Him. So it is especially if you are experiencing some affliction and oppression now, that may be what... What you need to, to hear and apply to your own heart and life, that God is mindful of you in your circumstances, whatever it is that you are going through, sometimes we, we tell ourselves a lie that nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody can identify with my pain. God can't. Christ can't. Our faithful high priest who was tempted in every way that we were, he is able to minister to our hearts because he has experienced what we experience. David is encouraging others to reflect upon the character of God and then to turn and sing praise to God. David says, hey, I'm going to sing and I want others to sing with me. It's not a solo act. That's the emphasis here, proclaiming the goodness and the glory of the one who does not forget the afflicted. As Christians, we always have hope. We always have a refuge in times of trouble. And our refuge is big enough for others as well. And we need to be willing to communicate that. Hey, I have a refuge and there's room in here for you as well. Come run with me to my refuge. Come run with me to my king and to my judge. And with that, David closes out his reasons of why we should run to this royal courtroom. He gave us these three reasons. That God is worthy of praise, that he has a history of faithfulness, and he is worthy of our proclamation. And then from here, David shifts gears ever so slightly. and For the remainder of the psalm, he again lays out for us what it looks like to go and run to God, what it looks like to go and, and make an appeal to our righteous king and our righteous judge. That's what we see in verses 13 through 20. David gives us an example of what it looks like to make an appeal. And we can divide this portion up into to four Sections and I've I've stated them just as brief observations of of how to go and run to God. First, in verse thirteen, we could say, "Make your petition." David says, "Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, what a beautiful lifting that is." That God has lifted us up from the gates of death, and and David begins that verse with a simple and concise prayer. What does he say? He just says, "Be gracious to me, O Lord. Be gracious." And somebody said that that there are certain verses in the Bible that kind of summarize the entire Bible, like John three sixteen. Right? The, the message of John three sixteen is kind of condenses down all of biblical truth of what God is doing in the course of history and. What we have in that little line, be gracious to me, O Lord, is really an entire prayer book to instruct our hearts and understand what it really means to, to pray and to cry out to God. Such a profound prayer later to be echoed and held up and, and praised by Christ in his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Because what is the tax collector's prayer? Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is, in essence, what David is saying here. Lord, be gracious to me. Show me grace. And David begins by asking for grace, and he continues and says, Lord, see my affliction from those who hate me. Lord, I just want you to see and understand what I'm experiencing, what is going on, what's taking place. Lord, I want you to know what I'm going through. And we can rest assured that if we make that simple prayer, be gracious to me, O Lord, that God is always going to hear it. Our our U.S. Supreme Court is getting ready to go on summer break. So at the end of June, they'll kind of give out all of their their judgments for this annual term, and then they won't resume until October, right? And so there's this mad dash right now to get things turned in and to get judgments uh, announced and all of this. Aren't you glad that God doesn't have annual seasons where like, oh, God's unreachable for the next three months. He's out of the office and he won't return your calls. No, God is always able to hear that simple, honest prayer. Lord, be gracious to me. And we can take hope and find encouragement in that God doesn't have scheduled recesses. He's always on the bench. And we have an even greater hope than what David speaks of here. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 4 says, verses 14 through 16. To since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, With confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think the author of Hebrews gets his theology for that from the Psalms. That is what we see is just echoing what is stated here. And notice that David makes this simple prayer. He makes his petition and then he expresses a desire. In verse 14, as, as we, we come into God's courtroom, we, we make our petition and then we we desire God's glory. David says, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. David says, hey, my desire, Lord, is yes, I want to be delivered. And that's why I'm praying. But But more importantly, what does David want to do? David wants to brag about God in the gates of the city of Jerusalem. He wants to say, hey guys, look at what God has done for me. And if God delivers the king of Israel, what's Jerusalem going to be talking about? That deliverance. And that is David's desire. He says, God, I want, I want to be delivered, but more importantly, I want you to be glorified. I want you to be honored and exalted. And if we begin to, to pray in that way, it's going to change our, our hearts. We begin to, to pray, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. We're going, to, we're going to be less and less concerned about our own circumstances and more and more concerned with God's reputation. How, how is the the world around us going to view our redemption? How is the world around us going to view our actions? It changes and transforms the way that we pray. And when we pray for God's glory, we understand... The fleeting nature of our affliction and the eternal nature of his glory. That is again why Jesus instructed us to pray as he did. Not my will, but yours, gracious God. So he David gives us these these short ordered instructions of what it looks like to run to the royal courtroom. Make your petition. Desire God's glory. Thirdly, he says, Remember the future. And this is found in verses fifteen through eighteen. And I know that may sound a little bit strange to remember the future. Like how do I do that? You've seen time travel movies. Uh but 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 look with me. David says, The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net they hid them their own in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Because the wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. David begins to think about what he's already said. He's already looked at the scope of human history and says, this is how... Uh, We are to trust God, a reason that we to trust God because he has been faithful over the course of all human history. And then David begins to look at the future as Christians. We know how history ends. We've read the back of the book uh, and, and we know the outcome. So there's there's no surprise there. And we are called to to trust in what God is doing, not just in the here and now, but what he is doing in all of human history. And David's prayer recognizes the manner in which God interacts with the nations, the wicked and the needy. As the nations have sunk in the pit, and the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The idea of, hey, the the nations and the wicked, they get themselves into trouble. They are responsible for their own judgment. And David wants us to pause and think about that. That's what that little word selah means. Higion is another one of those musical terms, provides instructions to the choir master. But Selah says, hey, pause here and reflect upon what was just said. Stop and think about this. That when God judges, he judges righteously because the nations and the wicked, they get themselves into trouble. They set traps and they fall into those traps themselves. And when we begin to see and understand that, we understand again that God judges righteously. And that the nations have forgotten God. But then also how God interacts with the needy. Verse 18 says, The needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. The needy and the afflicted will never be forgotten by God. They will never fall out of His favor. They won't be forgotten by God, but the nations have forgotten Him. In, in, in recent years, there's, there's been a, a, a phrase thrown about in our culture. You may have heard it before, about being on the wrong side of history. You guys heard that? Uh, and they, they, they use this term to try and uh, address us and really to a kind of a, a attack and say, Hey, o- over the course of many years, you're going to see that our culture is going to condemn what you think and believe right now. And while on the one hand I would commend them for thinking historically and thinking of the big picture, I also would say that their view of history is too brief. And their view of history doesn't include the final judgment. Their view of history doesn't include when they themselves will have to stand before a righteous king and judge, and they will be evaluated. Then we'll really know who's on the right side of history. Jesus makes that determination, not our current culture of today. And what tends to happen with all cultures is they have values. And whatever the value is of that day, whatever past cultures disagreed with, they condemn that. It's really easy to condemn people from the past, isn't it? Because they can't really defend themselves. And it's really easy to pick and choose and say, I, if I was back there, I wouldn't have done that. And you know what? What's amazing is that the Pharisees of Jesus' time said that to him. If we had been alive when they killed the prophets, we would have stood against them. And Jesus says, no, you wouldn't have. Because I, the greatest of the prophets, the culmination, the prophet spoken of by Moses, has come. And what did they do to Jesus? They killed him. They did the exact same thing. We really know who's on the right side of history when all people stand before God at the great white throne judgment. That's when... The right side of history will be determined and made known. A.W. Tozer said this, he says, The resurrection and the judgment will demonstrate before all worlds who won and who lost. Says we can wait. That is what we need to, to prepare ourselves for. It's okay for the world to say, well, you're on the wrong side of history right now. Okay, just give it time. It'll come back around. I'll be on the right side of history at the right point in history because we know how history culminates. And what's amazing is, is because David does know how history culminates, he finishes his prayer in a unique way, in a way that most of us wouldn't. What we see in verses 19 and 20, after making his petition, desiring God's glory, he closes with a plea for the nations. It says, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. And again, knowing that that the nations have forgotten God and they need to know God, it's amazing that David prays for them. And it's both a a prayer of judgment and a, in essence a prayer for Their salvation. David pleads for God to rise up and act. He says, God, don't let man prevail in these circumstances. Don't let the men, don't let the wicked think that they are right. Don't let that take place, God. But he says, what the nations need to understand is who God is and who they are before God. The nations need to go back to Psalm 8. Again, say, what is man that you are mindful of him? And that's David's prayer. The nations need to know that they are not God. They are but men. But here's also something that you and I need to understand, that those who afflict us and those who persecute us, those who attack us, they are but men. That's it. We still have a righteous and holy God who is on the throne. In the early part of uh, the Battle of Gettysburg in July of 1863, things were just a mess behind the, the Northern Union lines. Had, uh, you had know, ambulances carrying the dead and the wounded back from the front. Uh, you had those who were kind of stragglers and dazed and had shell shock uh, wandering about the camp. Uh, and in the background, you have this, this deafening sound of cannon fire and this constant fire of rifle shots. And there was a column of fresh northern troops marching to the front line, which isn't really clearly distinguished. You don't really know when you're going to suddenly appear within range of those cannons that you're hearing. Slightly unnerving. And then on top of all of that, I guess during the Civil War, the, the, the southern Confederate troops had this thing that they called the rebel yell. Uh, and historians say they can't really mimic it because it was only able to to make the yell while you're running full speed. Uh, and it, would just, it was this noise that they would make, this screech that was very unnerving to northern troops. And so the, these fresh northern troops are marching toward what would become the most important battle in the Civil War, the Battle of Gettysburg. And they're starting to get unnerved, starting to hear all of these sounds. And as they they walk, there's this little roadside cabin. In front of that cabin, there's this tiny old woman. And she's sensing the unease of the troops as they walk past her. And she's there, and she's repeatedly saying something calmly and soothingly to these troops who are going into battle. And what she's repeating over and over again, she says, Never mind, boys. They're nothing but men. That's what Jesus is repeating over and over. And one soldier says that those little commonplace words uttered in that context seemed almost sublime. And the lads shook off their panic and were brave soldiers once again. they saying, what did they realize? It's terrifying when you just look at all of the sights and sounds around you, but then they realize, hey, I'm, I'm just going to go fight other men. That's what gave them courage. And that's what needs to give us courage as well. In the middle of our affliction in the middle of persecution and oppression those who are oppressing us are but men and as christ says we're not to fear those who can take your life and that's it right no biggie that's all they can do who are we to fear to honor to worship one who can do more than just take our life but give us eternal life who's in whose hands our eternal destiny rests And our prayer should be that the nations would realize their standing before God, that they are creatures and he is the creator. And our prayer should be that we remember that same truth, that we are but men and those who afflict us are but men. And may we remember these reasons that we should run to the royal courtroom. And may we follow this example of running to our savior, our king, our judge, Jesus Christ, who sits on the throne even now, who's paid for all of our sins. And if we've trusted in him, all of our sins have been paid for. And we know that one day he will judge every single sin, every single injustice. He will judge righteously. And that should give us hope, comfort, and encouragement, not only in our own lives, but good news to share with others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are our creator. And we are but men. Lord, it is amazing that you are mindful of us, that you are aware of all of our trials and afflictions. Lord, we gain comfort and hope in knowing that. That you are not some far off God But you are near and close to the poor, to the needy, to the oppressed and the afflicted. Lord, may we remember that in our times of trouble. And Lord, may we know you. May we trust you. May we seek you in those times of trouble. Lord, may you be the stronghold that we run to. May you be our refuge. And may we be convinced that there is no other refuge There is no other stronghold. Only you. Lord, give us that hope. Lord, if there are those here today in the middle of conflict, in the middle of oppression and persecution, Lord, may you strengthen them and sustain them to trust you, to run to you at this time, at this moment. And Lord, may you comfort and encourage them by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that that you have placed your son on the throne to rule and to reign. He is our king and our judge. And Lord, may we appeal to him on a regular basis. Coming to him in prayer, with a simple prayer. Lord, be gracious to us as sinners. Show us your grace. Show us your mercy. Not because of what we have done but because of what your son has done. How amazing it is to think that our judge, our king, is also our sacrifice. The one who has given his life for ours. Lord, we long for that day when he will right every wrong. But that's also a sobering and a scary day, Lord, as so many of the people around us don't know him. And on that day, they will give an account. So, Lord, as we, as we long for His appearing, as we long to see His kingdom established, Lord, may we also work and labor faithfully to proclaim His worthiness and the salvation that only He can offer. May we point others to Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and Judge, and in whose name we offer up this prayer. Amen.